0: Coming back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support coming back on Patreon at patreon.com slash My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to the podcast host of Life After Losing Mom, Kat Bonner, about losing both her mom and her grandmother in her teens and twenties, and how at some point, we must all make the conscious choice to come back from the losses we face. Also this week, I'm talking about the grief of feeling stuck. Have you ever felt stuck in the aftermath of loss? I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and coach who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learn to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to coming back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you're looking for grief support beyond this podcast, remember that our next live grief support hangout is coming up on June 24th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time these live calls with me are your chance to ask me whatever questions you have about grief and loss, share ideas for upcoming episodes of this show. But above all else, it's a chance to connect with other coming back listeners who are doing the work of coming back from grief and loss and kind of feed off ideas from each other and share in the hard days too. I love how the internet keeps us connected that way. If you'd like to join this live grief support call with me and other listeners of this podcast, all you have to do is pledge to support coming back at any level at patreon.com slash shelby for scythia. Once you pledge, you'll instantly unlock the link to join us live as well as all of my other private posts. And you can click that link to meet us in the chat room on June 24th. No fancy software ever required. I would love to see you there grief growers. You can find the link to join us, which is patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia in the show notes for this episode and also at my website, shelbyforsythia.com. Today I want to talk about feeling stuck. It's something that so many grievers face, and it's one of the most frustrating, roadblocking components of grief. So much of our pre-grief lives take place In motion, we're always moving, whether we're physically in motion or striving towards dreams and goals. So when grief enters the picture, we suddenly find ourselves doing a lot of sitting still. A lot of people compare grief to paralysis, even this whole body, mind, heart sensation of not being able to physically, energetically, emotionally move. And when we're sitting still in grief, feeling like there's nowhere to go and nothing to do, I mean, honestly, it can feel like we're failing at grief and failing at life. Like, shouldn't there be a way out of this? Shouldn't there be something to do besides just sit here? It feels like I'm going to be here forever. A lot of people relate this to their purpose, like they blow it up to be, this means I have no purpose, no life purpose. I am stuck because I don't know my purpose. But grievers can also relate feeling stuck to things like a lack of joy, or a lack of motivation, a lack of drive, a lack of direction, or even just a lack of interest. Some of you in the grief grower's garden, and a lot of the people that I work with through the grief recovery method have relayed this feeling or this sensation of being numb. That's a symptom of stuckness, too. The first thing to do when you're stuck is to recognize I am stuck. (laughs) Just bringing some awareness to the fact that it's happening can be a relief. Like, oh, that's what I've been feeling. That's what has me feeling crummy. I'm feeling stuck. Okay, that's a start. The next thing to do when you're stuck is normalize your stuckness. You are not the only one here, I promise you. I have been and am currently in, in seasons of stuckness. And I encourage you to hop onto the Grief Grower's Garden Facebook page and poke around in there. There's a lot of echoing sentiment of not really knowing where to go or what to do next, or even if there's anything that can be done in this moment. You can also find this in a lot of books and memoirs about grief too. One of my favorite resources for coming back is Cheryl Sandberg's book called Option B. In it, she talks about psychologist Martin Siegelman's three Ps that stunt recovery, the biggest of which and the most difficult for most people is permanence, the belief that the aftershocks of our grief will last forever. She has this passage, and I'll actually read it on the show today if I can flip through this book. It says, For months, no matter what I did, I felt like the debilitating anguish would always be there. Most of the people I knew who had lived through tragedy said that over time the sadness subsides. They assured me that one day I would think of Dave and smile. I didn't believe them. When my children cried, I would flash forward to their entire lives without a father. Dave wasn't just going to miss a soccer game, but all the soccer games, all the debate tournaments, all the holidays, all the graduations. He would not walk our daughter down the aisle at her wedding. The fear of forever without Dave was paralyzing. There's that term paralyzing again, in relation to being stuck in grief. So you are definitely not alone. And grief growers, I know that feeling less alone is not the same thing as feeling better. But please know in your stuckness that you are not the only one in the world for as much as it feels that way. You may be stuck. Yes, we will acknowledge that together. We will all acknowledge that with you today. But you are not the only one stuck. There are so many of us out here who have walked and are continuing to walk the road back from stuckness. The third thing to do when you're stuck is to reframe stuckness. And this is probably the hardest thing to do for most, if not all of our lives, we're taught that a lack of motion, or striving or goals or tasks or having something to do is bad, like it has morality placed on it all of a sudden, good versus bad, that if we're not chasing momentum, that we have nothing to live for, that we're failing. It's expressed in this thought of, well, if I'm not doing anything, what's the point in being alive or in being here? And this idea, this teaching, this mentality, frankly, is toxic and garbage. It reduces people, us, humans, down to our productivity and our exterior accomplishments, and that's not healthy. It's something that I still struggle with, grief growers. This urge to get unstuck so we can get back to making things and doing things and accomplishing things, it's very, very real. One of my favorite podcasters, Rob Bell, did a sermon-like episode just this week called A Bit More About That Last Episode. It's a follow-up to his previous episode, which is called Some Days I Feel Lost. So it's like this paired set of podcasts, Some Days I Feel Lost, and a bit more about that last episode. And in these two episodes in the series, he talks about how being lost or wandering or having no direction is not our enemy. In fact, it's this universal human experience that humanity has been having for over 3,000 years. It's a normal part of human life. He quotes a lot of the Bible in his episode. He comes from Christian roots and um, pastoral teachings. Uh, And what was interesting to me is that the Bible is surprisingly full of examples of people doubting their role, their purpose, their direction in life. And what made me laugh is that Rob Bell even cautioned about not trusting people who say they've never been lost. So people like overzealous megachurches or self-help gurus or doctrines that think they've got God and religion or life all figured out because those people are really lost. And there's kind of a, a lack of humanity in never being lost or stuck where I'm personally like, wow, you say you've never been lost or that you have it all figured out. I don't know that I can trust you with my story or my heart and my grief because if you've never been here, you have no idea what this is like. I don't know if I can take advice or teachings or truth from you. I don't know about you guys, but I want to hear from the lost and stuck people. I want evidence and proof that being stuck won't be the death of me. It's just a part of the process. And it's just where I am right now. So in terms of this reframing, I want to throw some what ifs out there for you today to ponder. What if being stuck was not an enemy? What if being stuck was a normal human experience? What if being stuck is not forever? If it's not the permanence thing that Cheryl Sam- Sandberg talks about? What if it's just where you are right now? What if, and this is a big one, what if being stuck was productive, full of movement, and accomplishing something on your behalf? You know, it's funny, this is just now coming to me, is that you never hear about kids feeling stuck. Kids are often in these spaces where they're not doing anything or accomplishing anything or even moving sometimes. But do we tell them, do we tell kids that they're stuck, that they need to get going or they're going to miss out on something, that they're worthless or useless in a lack of constant momentum? No. Adults and kids usually call that free time or recess or play time. There is no agenda. There's nothing to really do or be or go towards, but kids are allowed to have it. And we don't scold them for it. We understand that there's learning and growing happening in these areas of unstructured play, of time without purpose. And even though there's not an explicit goal, something is happening. What if being stuck in grief is like our hearts going on recess, hearkening back to this notion of wanting to play and explore without having to accomplish anything? What if our hearts just want to lay on the floor for a while without the pressure of meeting a deadline? What if our brains just need to be still so our bodies can catch up and process everything we've been through? What if there's something happening in the stuckness? What if we're learning that doubt and frustration and being lost are normal and a part of the process? What if we accept that something we don't fully understand and may never understand? Is happening in what we think and label as stuckness. That would be pretty radical, wouldn't it, grief growers? My goal today is not to get you unstuck in grief. I don't know that I have that power, or if that's even my job. I just want to give you room and space to breathe here, grief growers. You are not the only human who feels stuck right now. You can join our big worldwide I feel stuck club. And being stuck, for as much as it feels like it, and for as much as you tell yourself it is, is not doing nothing. Even here, even in stuckness, even in this paralyzing stillness of the aftermath of grief, something is happening. Whether your heart is taking a recess, your mind is catching up to your body, or you're just resting in this space that grief has left wide open in your life. Know from me and from so many other grieving people that it's okay to be stuck. It is safe for you to be stuck. And just uncork that pressure valve just a bit. Grief requires nothing of you other than you experience it. No goals, no accomplishments, nowhere to be, no milestones. Stuckness is an ancient human experience. So if you're here with me, welcome to stuckness. If you'd like to share your story of being stuck, I would love to have you join me in the Grief Grower's Garden, which is my private Facebook page for listeners of this podcast. Click the link in the show notes to join me and let us know where you felt stuck in your loss. Next up, my conversation with Kat Bonner, who lost her mom and her grandmother in her college years. Grief is setting sail. Twice on the 2020 bereavement cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruises organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Kat Bonner is a grief coach for motherless daughters, Through one-on-one coaching and her podcast Life After Losing Mom, she guides women who've lost a mom through the ups and downs associated with grief. You can find out more about her work and listen to her free podcast at CatBonner.com. Well, grief growers, I am so excited to introduce you to Kat Bonner, who off the mic we have just recently discovered is from North Carolina, which if you've listened to the show long enough, you know that I am from North Carolina as well. So we've had some fun uh, sharing our accents <laughs> for a little bit. And Kat uh, has a very similar story to my own where she lost her mom. And she also has her own podcast about life after losing mom. So I'm excited to explore the ways in which we're similar today, but also the ways in which we're different. So Kat, welcome to the show. And if you could please share your lost story with us.
1: Yes, thank you for having me. I will try to be as brief as I can. I haven't talked about it in a while. Um, I guess it started when I was 14. My parents divorced so they both still lived in Greenville which is where I was raised but I lived with my mom because my dad traveled for work a lot so when my mom passed I was living with her and I was 18 at the time um We had just, like, downsized and sold the house that I grew up in. So it was our very first night in our new townhouse. And one of her friends came and knocked on my door one night with some police officers. And I was like, what in the world is going on? I'm dreaming. And they all came inside and sat me down and basically told me that your mom has been killed in a car accident. So... That the rest of the day was pretty much, I don't really remember much, but a little bit of background. My mom was an alcoholic, so she was drinking and driving, and she was killed on impact. And I ended up, since I was home alone, I ended up actually calling my dad because he was the first person that I could think of to basically break the news to everyone. And after that, my mom's mom was still alive. So I went to go live with my mom's mom. And this was in April of 2013. And then I went off to college about an hour away in August of 2013. So I basically had like another mom. And when I turned over, right before I turned 21, so it was October of 2015. So about two and a half years after my mom passed, I was actually home for fall break visiting my grandma that I lived with, and she got really sick. And I ended up losing her, surprisingly. And yeah, so it was a matter of like losing two moms in a matter of two and a half years. She just got really sick really fast. And then, yeah, that's kind of where it, I guess, ends. I haven't really had any other immediate deaths since then.
0: The first word that springed to my mind and something that happened in my own lost, lost story, losing my mom kind of around the time I was in college is this word security and literally feeling like, especially because you describe your grandmother as like my second mom, like I had this mom, and there was this figure and then she was gone. And then here's this other one and here's this figure. And now she's gone. It's like, I, I keep getting this visual of like the ground falling out from underneath you
1: that's a very good description pretty much i and i know that people probably would hate be like oh it's your grandma but after my mom died it wasn't just my grandma so i was like okay this is i know what it's like to lose one mom but to lose basically what is two in a matter of that short amount of time i didn't know how to handle it
0: yeah. Can we can we explore the role of your grandmother for a little bit because that is something that the world society at large likes to do is tell us that certain losses based on their proximity to us should be ranked as more severe than others even though people on the outside have no idea what their roles and what their stories are in our lives.
1: Yes, absolutely. We can definitely discover that I guess a little bit about my grandma. We, I don't know my dad's side of the family. So it was literally just me and my grandma. Her husband died when I was six and she lived in the hometown that I grew up in. So we were always, you know, pretty close. Um, and then when, so she normally obviously played the grandma role until my mom passed. And then my mom passed, everything, you know, happened so quickly. So I was like, okay, like I'm going to move in with grandma. like don't really have a choice. I'm about to graduate from high school, that sort of thing. And it wasn't so much a role, like she was still my grandma, but because I lived with her, I think it made it seem like she was my mom and she still took care of me. I mean, even after losing her own daughter. So we never really like talked about my mom or had that sort of conversation, but we both just kind of took care of each other. And I think that's where our relationship just really manifested into a mother daughter type of relationship. Like I live with you. So when I go home, like I'm going home to you, like most people would go home to their parents. So her home just became my home. And that's just kind of how that happened.
0: I know there's probably so many people listening who are like, well, maybe my parents were not a part of my life, or maybe one parent died, and so I was raised by somebody else. So to have this parental figure, regardless of what their quote-unquote label is in life, I think makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And it was the closest thing that I had to my mom. Yeah. Yeah. And that proximity, too, of like, she was my mom's mom, so that same side of the family and knowing who she was as a person and And how she died, like not having to explain the story, it sounds like was part of it too.
1: Very much so. We like, we all knew what happened. We were all in this together. So since I don't have my mom, my mom's mom is the next best thing.
0: I'm interested because I did not know this element of your story that your mom was an alcoholic and then died in a car accident. I'm wondering like what your feelings are towards her death towards how it happened
1: um well I actually didn't know that she was an alcoholic either until the day before I moved in for college so originally when she passed they were just like oh like it was a car accident alcohol is suspected you know the news they're all like alcohol is always suspected well yeah so I found out when the toxicology results came back like a few weeks later that her blood alcohol content was well above the legal limit. So originally I was, I guess my feelings were just very angry. Like I know that sounds cliche, but I was angry at myself for not knowing that she had a problem. Um, I was angry at her at first for, you know, drinking and driving. But then when I started to think about it, I was also relieved because she did not suffer. I mean, she died on impact. So that's the way that she wanted to go, regardless of if she were drinking and driving. You know, who's to say that if she wasn't, she would still be here. You know, I I can't think like that because we don't know if that's the case. And the situation is what it is. But regarding her having that disease, once I, you know, talked to my dad and some other people, They were like, you know, we tried to get her to get help for years and she didn't want help. So in some ways, I do think that she made selfish decisions, but she cannot control the fact that she was sick. So her decisions ultimately led up to her becoming an alcoholic and I think that she knew it was selfish to drink and drive even like, and she knew that it was wrong, but that was just the way that alcoholics think. So I guess my feelings now toward it, I have a lot more compassion knowing that it was definitely not something that she could like the sickness itself was not something that she could control. and. There was nothing that I could have done differently, regardless if I had tried to help her, if I knew she had a problem or not. She didn't know she had a problem, so she was not going to get help.
0: Wow. I, I'm literally getting chills as you're talking because I I don't know how to put words to this, but I see you having this, I'm going to try, I see you having this like zoomed out perspective from everything that happened. But at the same time, you and I had this conversation before we got on the mic of like, you're 24 years old, I'm 26 years old. And all the time, I think, especially in a podcasting space, when people don't really know, like, the, the stats of who's on the other side of the mic, you sound like somebody who could be in their 30s or 40s with the amount of like, wisdom and compassion about this that you've developed and this is a big deal like finding out i literally wrote down discovering her mom was an alcoholic like that's not an easy thing to contend with after someone we love has died like dealing with grief is one thing but the discovery of secrets or additional information or like a a betrayal or a sickness in this way is like that's some real heavy shit
1: yeah, absolutely it is. And it definitely, it's not that it didn't make it harder because I guess things are only as hard as you make them, but finding everything out after the fact, it just literally right before I moved to college, I was like, okay, what is this nonsense? Like, what the fuck am I going to do? I Like, how am I just now finding this out? And I was angry because I thought like, my parents were almost sheltering me. Like, my brother knew all of this stuff, but he was the kind of person where he was into drinking and that sort of thing. I wasn't. So I thought that because I was, like, not caving into peer pressure or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Like, why did I not know until now? Like, I was 18. That's not – that's old enough to know these things. So it definitely – Yeah, it was definitely a lot thrown at me, but it was almost nice to like see it on paper and to read it because then you can't really deny it, even though it wasn't obviously a fun thing to read or to hear, but it was there and that was the truth and I just had to deal with it essentially. But thank you for complimenting and saying that uh, I don't want to feel old by any means, but I definitely want to feel mature. So I guess we'll just call it that.
0: Well, I think that um, some aspect of grief, if we lean into it, forces us to grow up. Um, And I'm curious how you took this experience to college with you, because this is not something that every 18, 19 year old has to face and contend with. So I'm wondering if and how it was possible for you to make connections with other people who were your age and like the atmosphere of college.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Originally, obviously when my mom first passed, I went to a really small high school. So I was the only person in my friend group or literally the only person at my school that had lost a parent. So that definitely wasn't easy. But when I got to college, I was very open about my story. I also went to a small school, so I was it was all women's, so I was very comfortable with sharing that. It felt like a safe space, and I ended up having like a ton of resources. And it's crazy now; I can count on two hands how many girls, like in my class, or that I know from college, have lost their mom or their parent. And I think I was definitely the first, but just talking about it and sharing that with them, I mean, it was crazy, you know, the connections that I made. So I was comfortable talking about it and I definitely think the community helped. Um, The president of the school actually lost her dad when she was in college and the dean of students and they both reached out to me, which is crazy after my mom passed and, you know, Hey, if you need anything, let us know. So it was definitely just, everybody needs, you know, that safe space to where they can share their story and know that it's not going anywhere. And to be able to meet all these other women who had been through something very similar at also a young age was um,
0: not reassuring, but definitely very comforting. Can you describe the difference between the two? because that's interesting that you said that you're like not reassuring, definitely comforting.
1: I feel like I use those words interchangeably all the time, but comforting. I think I just use more in a sense of, okay, I'm not alone. I'm comfortable talking about this and sharing this and comfortable knowing that, you know, this is my life and, it's okay. Like that brings me comfort almost. It's more, I guess, emotional. And I think reassuring is more of a mental thing. And what I mean by reassuring is being mental is somebody, just me talking to somebody about how I feel regarding, you know, the situation or whatever. And they're like, Oh, like it would be normal. Or I hate that word, but, feeling that way would be expected so I can get comfort really from only these groups of people but I can get reassurance from multiple people so I think that's where the difference
0: is that's really cool I've never heard it phrased that way and I like that
1: okay I would, does that answer your question
0: uh, yeah well I mean you know you can answer this is a podcast you can answer however you want to this is <laughs> Rated by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it's always interesting because I think all the time, especially in grief, we're always kind of struggling with words because so much of it is an emotional experience. You're like, there just isn't vocabulary for this. And so much of the work that, that I try to do here on the show and from listening to feedback from listeners is like, okay, what are the words that we're using to describe this and what does it mean for us? Um, because some people hear the word comfort and they're like, don't even try like, don't even try to comfort me, because that's BS, frankly. Um, and some people are like, I'm frankly, I am looking for comfort. And some people have never even thought about what it means to them. Um, so I think that's really cool to have heard your perspective on both comfort and reassurance. I, I really like that. Um, I think the next place I want to go is to the medium of podcasting itself. Because I know uh, your show Life After Losing Mom is relatively new. But I want to know like, what, what sparked that for you, that piece of inspiration for you. Like, What does it look like? Yeah. How does it exist in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. So a girl I actually went to undergrad with,
1: um, she is a business coach for service-based entrepreneurs and clients, and I had seen her business Instagram, and I was like, okay, like, ready to explore the idea of entrepreneurship. So I just hopped on a call with her. And I was like, you know, I'm really struggling because I have these X, Y, and Z passions. So how do I know, you know, what to pursue? And she was like, okay, well, where did these passions manifest from? And once I started thinking about it, I was like, wow, all of these passions manifested from losing my mom. And she said, okay, have you thought about grief coaching? And I was like, no, I haven't. But maybe that's a good idea. Like, let me do my research. And I realized, like, from what I could find, I'm not going to assume that there isn't, but I did not find anyone out there who worked solely with women who had lost a mother. And I was like, okay, you know, this is a great idea. Like, let's give it a shot. And that's just kind of how everything happened. And I had re- I don't know when I started becoming like a user of podcasts, but once I started listening, I was hooked because like we said earlier, you almost mindless. You can do it when, you know, you're listening or whatever, not listening, sorry, driving basically anything. And it doesn't take a whole lot of brain power rather than, you know, sitting down and reading. And I think even if people don't really know what podcasts are, they would appreciate that facet of it not you know bashing blogs or anything but this day and age I mean that's just kind of like our time is so precious so that's just why I decided on a podcast
0: I love that too because it is like you said that uh to sit down and read something especially when we're grieving is like I don't know if I have the energy for this but I can let somebody talk at me exactly and you can stop and go and,
1: you know, listen to it as you please and not have to really worry about where you left off. And I don't know what it is about the listening. It's just less work almost emotionally. I feel like, like, I feel like I can literally just sit there and cry when I read a blog post. But if I listen to like a podcast episode of yours, not saying that they're not emotional, but... I just don't find myself really getting emotional or upset. And I don't really know why, but that's just what I've noticed.
0: That's really interesting. I don't know that I've ever thought of the emotional reaction to podcasts before, because there are ones where I have definitely started crying in the shower when I'm like getting ready in the morning listening to other people's podcasts. I'm like, I am crying right now, but also I'm not also sitting still and reading a blog post or reading a book and just like sobbing in my bed. Somehow those are two different pictures. Um, yeah. That's interesting. I think it's because when you're reading, you have to be doing nothing but reading
1: and you're like, okay, I don't really have anything to distract me. So this is where my focus is. So I'm focusing on my emotions from reading this, whatever.
0: Yeah. Whereas with podcasts, you could be driving or doing the dishes yeah. or, or whatever else results from it. Um, something that's coming up for me now is speaking of like voices and the way people sound. I wonder if there was anything unique or special about the way that your mom spoke, or maybe even your grandmother spoke if they had things like, like catchphrases or, Uh, things that come up when you think of hearing their voice like what does that sound like to you
1: well my grandma's just like a typical grandma voice I mean I don't really know how to describe that she was very religious so it's definitely just like calm and you know like it's okay like just a very like everybody like oh yeah like I love my grandma she's so cute so I know that's not really very helpful way to distinguish her but when I think of it, I just think of like a, literally an angeling voice. And I think it's fitting because she was religious and she's an angel and, you know, X, Y, and Z. But when I hear my mom's voice, oh, man, one of her favorite phrases is actually, it's all good, which is so funny because that's like my life mantra now. So I love how I didn't really realize the importance of the phrase obviously until I lost her but it's definitely a good way I try to live my life by
0: Ooh, I want to dig into that a little bit more because you and I I think we're resonating closely on this is that my mom's favorite song to sing around the house was the religious song it is well oh, kind of like a fancier way of saying <laughs> saying it's oh, <yeah>. good <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so I'm wondering how that's true for you and your grief, because I wouldn't normally connect. It's all good with I'm grieving because my mom is dead.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying that like, it's good that my mom is dead or it's good that, you know, I'm grieving, but it was when I realized the significance of the phrase, I really noticed my shift in mindset and how like, okay, the more I tell myself, like, you know, like, it's all good. Like, it was almost a way for me to ride out the bad days, and the hard times that came with grief, and to really embrace the good days and the good parts that came with it, because they're both going to happen. That's just kind of, you know, how grief is. So it really just helped me to notice and to shift my mindset and realize that, you know, things are, at the end of the day, things are as good or as bad as we make them. And it really helped me, I guess, in my coming back journey. But it really helped me to realize that things are a choice and happiness, especially, you know, like, if I'm choosing to think that it's all good, like, I'm choosing to be happy. And it is a choice. And once, you, once I realized that, it was so empowering. And I just, that was like a turning point.
0: How do you choose to be happy?
1: Oh, man, I should have known that question was coming. <laughs> um, let me see. I hadn't really thought about it. Um, I guess it would be just Really realizing that, I mean, what really helped me was obviously faced with the death at such a young age, you know, I kind of got numb to it at first. And I realized like, hey, like death, death is a part of life and I faced it head on. So really just taking life day by day and sounds cliche, but, you know, living life to the fullest and... Really, it's like, okay, like I don't want to be happy, but you like, no, you deserve to be happy. And it's almost just like choosing and acting on what you deserve. Like, okay, if you deserve a better dude, then go break up with the dude and go whatever. I mean, like just really realizing what it was that I deserved to be, what my mom would want me to be. Like, my mom is happy, you know? So I, I think it's just choosing in the sense of you can choose to be happier. You can choose to be unhappy, but I mean, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely more of a mindset thing. So just kind of realizing, just thinking about like the positive aspect of grief and really looking at the transformation and like, it sounds silly, but I told myself like, I am going to be happy. I'm going to be happy like today is a good day and eventually it just happens and it seems like less of a choice even though it kind of is because you can have a bad day and you can choose to let that bad day or that part of grief you know overwhelm you and you can choose to wallow in it or you can ride it out and you know let your grief guide you and then realize Hey, like, it's okay. Like tomorrow's a new day. There's like this one phrase, you know, every day might not be good, but there's something good in every day and really resonating in those little things. I think that's how you can choose to be happy.
0: I think this speaks to a lot of, uh, there was another guest that came on the podcast named Megan Devine who wrote the book. It's okay that you're not okay. And she talks about creating like neural pathways in our brain and so many other grief researchers talk about this too, but like if we can train ourselves to notice like red cars, when we go outside, we'll start training our brain to see a lot of red cars. And there's usually not more red cars on the road than there were before. But now that we've trained ourselves to see them, we start seeing them more. And so like, it looks like the prevalence has increased when it really has not. We're just noticing differently. And so we've created these new connections in our brain where they're used to not be. And it sounds like this, this practice of it's all good, or I can choose to be happy. Or even if the day was total garbage, what about the day, like maybe one thing that was good. And so if you start training yourself to look for good things, it's not a discounting of the bad, or the sad. It's just like, how can I also Include the good in this, and I think that speaks to the element of like power and control as well, because grief is such an out of control experience um that I think we struggle to feel like I don't have a grip on anything that's happening right now, so to start playing this like I spy, but with emotions <laughs> um, can can help us on the road to coming back because you don't flip one eighty from like awful to really happy overnight. It's definitely a practice.
1: Yeah, I very much so agree. I love how you use the little like red truck thing and you know, it's it's the little things and you don't think that they're big things, but you know, they really make a difference. So just that when I realized you and no, I you're right. That is very much so sort of taking control. When I realized that by saying these little things to myself is 100% taking control of my grief and you're like what in the world, how was this possible? And when you look at like when I go back and look on how much of a like a transformation I had just from those little things that I implemented in my life, like I realized, oh my goodness, like i for the rest of my life now I'll be able to hopefully take control of my grief just by constantly implementing you know these little things that made a huge difference in my grief transformation.
0: Now, I'm wondering, we're coming up on Mother's Day. This episode is going to be released after Mother's Day happens. Um, But this, uh, our conversation is happening on May 6th, which is less than a week out from Mother's Day uh, in the United States. So I'm wondering how you're celebrating or not celebrating or like what you do with this day that is inescapable?
1: Uh, I love this question. I'm actually going on like a Facebook Live in some Facebook groups. I'm um, just giving my two cents and tips. So I'm basically a Mother's Day survival guide because that's honestly what it is. What I have noticed with Mother's Day is, you know, with other holidays and other days, it can be, you know, family oriented, that sort of thing. But Mother's Day is literally just for moms. So I think that's why it's much harder. But I try to go somewhere new. Like this weekend I'm going to Greenville, South Carolina. I've never been before and I've always wanted to go. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm um, there's a balance between I think isolating yourself and just putting yourself out in public in general. I try to try to avoid public places leading up to mother's day because it's just a God awful reminder at that point. But the day of, I definitely don't have any traditions. My mom was cremated. So it's not like I can just, you know, go to her grave and visit her. And even if I did, I would not want to go there because I cannot stay in my hometown. And that would just be very bad for me personally. Like not a good way for me to cope. Um, you know, since she is cremated, I definitely feel like she's literally everywhere. So if I want to have a conversation with her, like, let me go sit outside and watch the sunset and go talk to her, that sort of thing. But in regards to like what I do on mother's day, I kind of just do like, I let my grief guide me. And I know that that's probably a very vague answer, but since it's very non-traditional, Holiday for me each one is different but it normally <laughs> consists of eating a lot of chocolate um and or junk food and watching netflix so definitely i don't i do not get on social media i i mean i will obviously this sunday just for you know business purposes but i don't really find myself talking to people um, and, you know, they understand that. So just very, as far as disconnecting rather than isolating. That's the way that I like to think of it. And sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I throw myself a pity party. And that's not a thing that I usually do. But if I decide I want to have pitch a fit and I want to scream, then so be it. That's what I'm going to do. Because this is one day where I feel like it is 100% appropriate for me to do that, I mean, I don't really care what other people think, but I just find myself only really feeling that way on Mother's Day. But definitely letting my grief guide me is what I can recommend for other folks. Literally just do whatever you have to do to get through the day. So, like I said, if that's pitching a fit, go pitch a fit. If don't feel bad about eating your weight in chocolate or junk food, it doesn't matter. It's one day and, you know, the next day you can get back on your diet or, you know, whatever. So
0: I'm smiling as you're saying that because uh, that's kind of how I do Mother's Day also. Like I give myself permission to go have a pizza or like go buy flowers, even though no one's going to receive them except for me or like things like that. And um, letting grief guide you is really important too, because sometimes something that I tell people when grief anniversaries or like hard days are coming up is like, make a plan, get as close as you possibly can to the plan. But like, if you don't, if you just want to stay inside and eat chocolate and watch Netflix, like you had a plan and it's fine that it fell through. Like, but for people who are like, I don't know what to do on the day. I'm like, maybe some structure is helpful, but I love this distinguish you made. You're, you're playing a lot with vocabulary in this conversation with um. I mean, between disconnection and isolation Because one, at least from my perception, disconnection seems conscious. Like I am consciously deciding not to touch social media today. And uh, isolation is just this, I I get this image of like a suffocating blanket of loneliness.
1: Yeah, that's very much so correct. I never really used, you know, those two words. I guess they just kind of came out, but it's a very good way to distinguish because you're both kind of like by yourself, whether you're isolating yourself or whether you're disconnecting yourself, but it's definitely important to be conscious of what you're doing, especially when it comes to grief. So that's why it's like going back to a choice. Disconnection is a choice. So you're choosing to basically just not be present with whatever you're disconnecting from and you're choosing to be present with yourself or with, you know, whoever you're with. In my case, it would be present with myself. And it's very riveting. Maybe that's not the right word, but it's just like, okay, I'm making this choice and I'm choosing to let my grief guide me. So I know I keep going back to cho- making choices, but that's very much. So what I believe it is.
0: And I think that's a great reminder through this conversation today that so much, like, it was not our choice to have our loved ones die. Like, we did not choose to lose our moms or your grandmother or, like, any of the other things that we've lost. And listeners of this show in a million years would never have signed up to have faced the losses that they're facing. Um, But the thing that we can choose or the thing that we do have power over is how we respond in the aftermath. And that's not to say that we should take up all responsibility 100% immediately afterwards, because it's not 100% to 100%, but this but this gradual growth, because even through grief, we are growing, this mm-hmm. gradual growth of, okay, I feel like I could be in charge of this, or I feel like I could choose this, or I feel like I could try this on even for five minutes and see how that feels, and then maybe put it down and try something else tomorrow. Um, that coming back to consciousness and starting to build back that foundational power or ground underneath our feet, that stability, security, the thing we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, is a really, really big byproduct of grief. And frankly, from a lot of the reading that I've done from Cheryl Sandberg, from um, Barbara Hopkinson, who did A Butterfly's Journey, came on, I think, in season three or four of Coming Back, um, is the practice of resilience is how much do you believe you can choose after the thing you really did not choose at all.
1: Wow. I like that. That's, yeah, it's grief is 100, percent about being resilient. I don't really consider the first like phases of grief or, you know, whatever a choice, because that's just a whole other story. But gradually, like you said, you know, when you realize that it's these little things that, I mean, If you don't make the choice to take control, let me... Okay, back up. Taking control of your grief and getting help is a choice. And that comes from realization. That comes from noticing that, hey, my grief is consuming me and I have a problem and I need help. And I'm choosing to get help because I don't want to live this way forever. I don't want to be miserable. Like, who on earth would want their grief to consume them for the rest of their life? Like, that just sounds absolutely god awful. So, once you realize the transformation and how far you've come, it's like, okay, I was able to take control of my grief. So, I was able to choose to let myself have this transformation.
0: Yeah. These are the moments when I want to encourage people wherever you are in your grief journey to like, look back, like reflect, like where were you a month ago? Or where were you six months ago? Or where were you a year ago? Or where were you like right after your loss happened? Because this is really like the heart of the message that I'm getting to And coming back is that even through grief we are growing whether we realize it or not it's wonderful when we have a conscious decision making ability about how we're coping with grief and we can take control of it and we can really make decisions about letting our our grief guide us and all that jazz but even even when we don't recognize it it's still happening just because we're living differently now with different information with different perspective with different coping mechanisms that we lived six months ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, however you'd like to see that iron out. So I just love, I just love that you've brought this all up today because this, this belief of power and control and harnessing these choices and that they do belong to us, like taking back what belongs to us, which is the choice to be alive and the choice of what to do with our lives uh, is really, really powerful. And there's like some pride in that.
1: Yeah, there very much so is. I'm, I see so many people that, you know, struggle in their grief journey. And I mean, it starts with being vulnerable. Obviously, nobody wants to admit they have a problem. But even knowing that you're not alone, it takes a lot of strength to A, realize that, you know, you need help. And it takes a lot of, you know, self-discipline to get the help. And then to transform, but it's all about self reflection self reflection and celebrating you know the small victories. I think that's how I was really able to make that choice. but you know realizing that you know you have come a long way, and even when you just look, you know you can look a month from where you are now and realizing that you've grown just in this short amount of time. So that's almost an encouragement or a catalyst to just keep growing and to keep getting through, you know, your grief and to keep working through it so you can fully see the transformation that is ahead of you. It takes, I mean, you know, it definitely does take self-discipline, like I said, but it takes celebration. Like we, we, It seems scary and daunting, I think, to go back and look on how far we've come, but it will most of the time yield a positive outcome. And that's like, we need to find that for ourselves when we're grieving. We need to see that, you know, we're doing okay. And when we see that we've grown even just a little bit, that it's not a struggle, you know, to get out of bed in the morning, you're like, okay, if I can do this, I can take control of my grief and I can witness the transformation that lies ahead of me.
0: I think that is just the perfect place to let people know exactly where they can find you and work with you as a grief coach, as well as where they can find your podcast and everything else that you do as well.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, I, um, I do have a podcast like sh- you mentioned it is called life after losing mom so it is dedicated to motherless daughters and just kind of what a woman's life is like after losing her mom um you can find me I'm on Instagram and Facebook I'm on Facebook just as Kat Bonner so that's B-O-N-N-E-R and I'm on Instagram as Cat Grief Coach And I just really help women who've lost a mom. I try not to use the phrase motherless daughters just because it can have, you know, different meanings. But nonetheless, I do help women who have lost a mom really experience and see and witness for themselves, you know, the transformational power of grief and help them. I offer actually customized one-on-one coaching because I think grief is very individualistic and it's different for everybody. So I basically just let people guide me and, you know, whatever they're struggling with, I have them tell me and then I coach them on, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever they're struggling with through the different seasons of grief, because who knows, you know, what that'll be. So I just you know, as they need help with something that's what I'm there for.
0: I'm just so glad I got to share space with you today and all of your vocabulary and all of your insight about grief from a fellow griefcaster, a fellow podcaster in this space, which has been really cool. So Kat, thank you so much for joining us on coming back today uh, from one woman who has lost a mother to another. Uh, thank you
1: so much for having me. It has been a dream.
0: So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Kat Bonner, host of Life After Losing Mom podcast, for coming on to talk about making the conscious choice to come back, and why podcasts are really great for grievers. Kat came back by playing I spy with her emotions, deciding to be happy in the aftermath of loss, and by leaning on her mom's phrase, It's all good. You can find a link to Kat's website where you can find her podcast, Life After Losing Mom, in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support from me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Our next live hangout is June 24th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. I hope to see you there. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby for Forsythia, or simply Shelby If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. One grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say what do you have to teach me if you're ready to start sharing your story or you're looking for tools exercises and a map forward in the aftermath of loss please head to shelbyforsythia.com grief coaching to fill out an interest form grief is a personal experience but we don't have to go it alone my heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back. Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforcythiacom grief dash coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforcythiacom grief dash coaching.